Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers, a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, uh, which now feels absolutely part of some distant geological epoch. Uh, Yes, I think I was um, a marsupial lion roaming (laughs) in pre-human Australia at the time. (laughs) (laughs) This week we're discussing I May Destroy You, created and starred in by Michaela Cole, a London actor and writer of Ghanaian heritage. Cole was born in London on the 1st of October, 1987. She and her older sister grew up in East London in the um, uh, Tower Hamlets, Hackney area. Uh, She went to Birmingham University to study English literature and theology, but after two years transferred to Guildhall School of Speech and Drama uh, to do an acting degree instead. I Will Destroy You aired on the BBC and on HBO Max in summer 2020 and has been hailed as quote, a triumph for the BBC, riveting, and in terminology I found interesting, more messy, uplifting, and complex than what viewers have seen in the past, according to Screen Rant. This has been the televisual event of summer 2020, and so after endless conversations and have you seen I May Destroy You, uh, we decided to let it skip the queue here on Hyped, um, and uh, because the fascination it has generated uh, seems distinct and merits urgent attention. Um, as well as remarking at how young Michaela Cole is, as Zoe said, like born in 1987 um, and somebody amazingly talented in so many fields, she's already won a BAFTA for her series Chewing Gum, um, which she began writing when she was a teenager. Um, just to add some more praise for I May Destroy You, this is from The Guardian. Uh, the author says, this is going to be a rave review because I May Destroy You is an astonishing, beautiful, thrilling series, a sexual consent drama if you want the one-line pitch, but so, so much more than that. It works on every level. Whereas The Independent said, no TV show has ever shown the complexities of sexual assault and how it affects survivors, their friends, and their communities quite like this difficult, harrowing, and hilarious drama. Um, and there's something about a show that can be both harrowing and <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> that explains the weird fascination um, that I May Destroy You has exerted. Another interesting point is that Michaela Cole was originally uh, approached by Netflix to make the show, and they offered her a million dollars if she was willing to make it with them. However, she turned the money down in order to make it with the BBC, because with the BBC, she was able to maintain complete creative control. And I think that's an important way to think about this remarkable series is that it is a piece of almost auteur television. You know, she has had an input not just into the script and obviously as the kind of volcanic central performance, but she's also thought about the soundtrack. Every detail of this has been kind of curated by her and by the fellow director, um, Sam Miller. What's striking is the form of this is kind of unusual for a BBC drama. It really is quite um, what's the word, aleatory, you know, it sort of snakes around. Um, the, the kind of program begins with um, an act of sexual assault, with a rape, um, which she then has to piece together afterwards through memory. And the next 12 episodes become a search really for her to try and make sense of her experiences, to try and find a kind of coherence about what happened in that night. 
and kind of call into question all of her other identities that have been thrown into doubt by what happens on that kind of particular evening. But it does mean that the form is completely open-ended. You know, rather than this be a story of an initial violation and then moving towards a conclusion or some kind of resolution, what's interesting about this formally is how it snags in and out of uh, memories, her own childhood, experiences that have affected her friends. It's an extremely, uh, what's the word? So it's a snaking thing. Um, and formally, it means it's a very unusual kind of storytelling, I think, for the BBC. Yes, and the thing to note uh, about that sexual assault and the reason she has to sort of filter through so many layers of memory and cognition and association is because she's raped after someone spikes her drink. So she, she knocks her head, she's unconscious and um, or, or extremely woozy out of it. And so she's not only having to surface up through these sort of confused memories, but also through an actual kind of chemical interference. I think the form is wild. To have this on the BBC, as you say, it's, it's got this really postmodern, disjointed, irregular, rough-edged rhythm, really. And, and, you know, often it's not clear what's going on. They'll be dwelling on certain details and domestic details, social details that end up having no relevance. And so it, it's, it's in that genre that we are seeing more and more. For instance, I don't know, I'd say in, even in Fleabag, uh, yeah, another massive, massive hit about a woman who's struggling to keep her act together. But it's a sort of texture that we get rather than any kind of clear narrative. And, and it, very confusingly, it begins in Italy where she's um, having a relationship or a, a sort of casual relationship with an Italian man who she and her best buddy meet through a drug deal, interestingly. Although he's a drug dealer and sells some drugs, he's quite anti-drugs. He never takes them and he disapproves of her lifestyle. So it starts off on this footing where you think, okay, she's got this, this Italian boyfriend. It's a bit unclear why. Um, and then that actually ends up being a much less important uh, part of the storyline um, as she uh, starts going snaking, as, as you say, Tom, down this, this path that follows from her assault. Um, and so, so it's another, it's just like divergence after divergence, but it, in the end, I think what she is trying to do is sort of give us this very split picture of the nature of reality and selfhood. And it, so it's, it's kind of, it's meta, it's psychological, it's subjective. I'm just surprised that it happened to work and work in such a way that everyone is kind of obsessed with or, or in love with the series and, and is finding it interesting. It's not boring. It's kind of fascinating. One other layer just to add, Zoe, is it's important that we should say that she's also a writer, the lead character in this. Mm. So it's partly autobiographical. It's inspired by um, an event in Michaela Cole's own past. Um, but also the lead character in trying to piece these things together is also thinking about how they can be turned into writing or how they can be kind of fictionalized or turned into something creative. Mm. And in the final episode, we see her building up this kind of mass of post-it notes all over her bedroom wall. And that mass of post-it notes is sort of how you feel as you, you know, navigate these different episodes, as you say, all these different branches and digressions. And she's not sure how to finish the story. I mean, what I think is really interesting is, as I say, there's no clear arc through this kind of experience. Um, and even in the final episode, you get three different versions about how you might reckon with that kind of experience of rape. So the whole thing, as you say, is very postmodern, is very self-aware, is very reflexive about storytelling and the difficulty of choosing one story. I would say, interestingly, the post-it note thing, um, okay, I write quite a lot and I sometimes even dabble with trying to write books that are have a narrative or at least aren't just scholarly or whatever. I have never in my life 
approach the writing process through a series of cute post-it notes all over my wall. And it really, it seems to be a thing because you know who else used uh, post-it notes to get her bestseller uh, published was Dolly Alderton. Oh, Dolly um, so, so it seems to be a thing. That's what's been eluding us all these years, Zoe. Post-it notes. We don't. We don't get to success. Exactly. I don't think we're freewheeling enough in the way we approach our writing. I think we need more handwritten post-it notes. And of course, that is interesting because both. Now I'm going to probably have to avoid going too deep into the Dolly uh, comparison here. But you know, this is a these these are women who come who become very successful as media personalities and quote-unquote writers through social media. But in the end, they kind of revert to these very old-fashioned means of like physically writing um, on post-it notes, which I think is, is kind of interesting. Could I leap in there and just say, it's interesting that, that it is, you have to work quite hard as a viewer. I mean, I did feel I was having to concentrate quite kind of carefully on it. And apparently that was also intentional. Michaela Cole insisted to the BBC that the episode shouldn't be put up all at once for binge viewing. She actually wanted it, the story to kind of be released bit by bit incrementally in order for it to feel a bit like a detective story. Um, it reminded me in some ways of even something like Memento, you know, that Christopher Nolan movie where the mm. lead character has, uh, has forgotten the crime at the origin and has to piece his way back to it. There is a kind of sleuthing that goes on. Mm. But what's interesting in this is that the sleuthing is not just about trying to re- happen what happened that night but also she starts remembering other things about her childhood. There's this remarkable scene where she recalls catching her dad cheating on her mum. You know, that scene where she discovers, yeah. remembers her dad's own infidelity. So there's, there's a bigger story here about how in the wake of a traumatic incident, a woman starts to re-narrate her own life and fill in the gaps of her personality in a much bigger way. And again, that is happening across the spectrum. And this is, you know, she's doing it in a much more interesting way in some ways but Fleabag is about psychological detective work um Fleabag uh, everyone's seen Fleabag but Fleabag (laughs) is about (laughs) Fleabag is about a woman in London who's got a sex addiction and really struggling after the death of her best friend um which she blames herself for and uh you know the uh, pure which is a based on a woman's book about having sexual obsessive compulsive disorder in the mind um constant kind of intrusive thoughts about sex all the time um, again, this is a, it's requiring this detective work to go back and uh, and piece together the sort of elements of the self and then to move forward. So, you know, we've talked about this quite a lot on this on this podcast. But but again, the sort of the therapy narrative, the psychological detective work required is definitely front and center. Uh, one other word you used, Zoe, at one point was the textures of this. Mm. And as I say, Michaela Cole kind of had complete control over you know the look the direction, the actors and so on. And I just wondered how important you thought it was that this is a London story and that you see quite a lot of the city uh, where this is sort of being played out and how far London itself is a character or a backdrop for some of these you know, wild bacchanalian and also kind of sometimes quite like squalid kind of encounters. Yeah, I mean, London just comes up again and again uh, as, a, as a kind of visual character in this. And there'll just be scenes and then almost like a, a taste bud cleanser. There'll be like a shot of, of London from South London. You'll just see houses and the shard in the distance. So I think London is very much playing a, a role as a character here. That's a kind of tradition Kind of reminds me of people who are interested in alienation. When I was studying dating and loneliness and singleness for my, my PhD work and then for the book afterwards, I watched some documentaries um, about singleness and these, these new solos in London who were sort of sort of seeking help to meet people because they were so alone. And it really reminded me of that, these, these shots of London just doing its business, sort of London pulsating 
full of strangers who aren't close to each other. So London as a, a crowd and, an, and a deeply alienating, lonely kind of place. You see that very much in her friend. I was thinking about, you know, the white housemate that they live with, who is a semi-recluse. Um, and you are reminded that while they're off having their wild sort of Soho life, there is this slightly sad man at home who lives for tending his garden that there are these people who fall through the cracks in London, um, the sort of lonely and the lost. And also, absolutely, there are people who are literally lonely and lost, but then there's also one thing this series really gets at so well, and, and so did Fleabag, frankly, um, and so did Pure, um, which was, by the way, on Channel 4, um, is that even if you're in a, in a crowd of people in Soho drinking, it still can be lonely. You're just, you're just these bodies kind of knocking together, desperately trying to find some kind of pleasure or distraction or hedonism. Um, and that can be very lonely, too. I think in, in this thing, you know, one of the main themes is these incredibly close friendships between um, Arabella, who's the name of the main character played by Cole, and her friends. Terry and Kwame, and th these three are kind of completely inseparable, almost like siblings. Um, so that that kind of uh, goes through it. But but still, I think I think London and this 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 theme of the urban alienation and these sort of um, toggling between profound aloneness in a crowd or the loneliness of crowds and these sort of little islands of of connectivity. Um, it's almost Matthew Arnold, Zoe. That was a very poetic flourish. Oh, really? Oh, um, I'm channeling Matthew. We millions in Isled. I think one of the interesting dimensions of the way London is represented is the shabbiness of it. Um, if you think about, you know, those images of her at home, there's all of these images of Michaela Cole on the toilet, which I loved. Mm. I mean, this kind of everyday banality of London is linked to this attempt to try and demystify womanhood. And I think it's quite interesting that, it's, as you say, it's not a very glamorized view of the life in the metropolis at all. It's about a flat share where you're on top of each other, um, where you've got this slightly kind of grubby, you know, parties where you're drinking out of kind of plastic cups. Um, I liked the fact that, you know, the candor with which it, you know, thought about the female body and it represented her as a fundamentally messy kind of person. And I suppose that's another key connection with Fleabag is it is an interest in a female protagonist who is sometimes exasperating and who is, you know, unable to get on top of things. So like yeah. he's a kind of chaotic character. Absolutely, Tom. Mess is in. Um, I have to say, I, I'm less enthusiastic about the endless scenes of her on the toilet, only because I don't <laughs> think they're as innovative as you're suggesting. I do. What think about what about the tampon scene, Zoe? Not innovative. Okay, not that innovative. shocked me. There's a scene where she's um, having sex, or she for the first time with Biagio, her Italian lover, and she has her period, and she explains how she has a heavy period, and and he they decide to proceed. And he takes her tampon out and you see it. And, and then a blood clot appears on the bed. And it's so anyway, it, it's, it's, it's really um, that that's extreme. And I mean, it's, it's, it is, I mean, that's taking demystification of the female body into a, a different realm. But I, I think that this new depiction of, of women as really having bodies too is um, it's been around for a while. Uh, I'm thinking of Broad City, for instance, which is a yeah. hilarious Comedy Central uh show with these two women in New York. A lot of that takes place on the toilet. I think a lot of Fleabag probably takes place on the toilet. Um, there's a film with Greta Gerwig. Oh, what was it called from a few years ago? Francis Ha? Yes, Francis Ha. And that's also very frank about female bodies. So I think, I think that's actually just part of a trend. Um, what we're not so used to seeing is that in relation to a black woman. This is about a black woman, her two best buddies, their world, a lot of it to do with these extended family and social connections who are Ghanaian. So it's a black London, basically. 
uh, and it's a black depiction of, of femininity. And I think, you know, that sounds obvious, but that's where it's unique. We don't usually see black, you know, media types starring in TV shows on the toilet, spending a lot of, we don't see their tampons. That really does seem to be kind of plowing new uh, terrain. But for me, okay, I think now gender, I suppose before we, we leap into, into race, <laughs> she is another type of slightly dysfunctional woman. And I feel like I've seen a lot of stuff recently over the last few years, which star women who are somehow in the media or arts or something like that, or would like to be, they can't quite get their sort of shit together. They can't quite cope with deadlines. They have very precarious employment. They constantly have mess ups and derailments. You sort of feel like saying, how are you, how are you being like this? Like, why are you not just working your butt off so that you can afford to pay your rent? Why are you, you know, this, her poor flatmate has to kind of cover for her rent quite often because she just can't sit down and get on with the, the contract she's been to signed and she's been expected to deliver so i think the gender stuff is is asking us to both demystify the female body which is very welcome and interesting um and it's also obviously putting showing women's sexuality heterosexual sexuality in quite um unstinting un, unprettified way but when it comes to women's professionalism mm. i think that's really interesting when you get these super real female bodies they often can't hold down a job if you compare it to like big bang theory where you get these sexually repressed geeks but they're brilliant at what they're doing and they're really you know successful and so on it makes me uneasy that we keep having characters fleabag etc uh the girls from broad city you know funny as they are compelling as they are there's something about these narratives that means they can't also have have their professional lives together they can't be accountable they can't discipline themselves they're, they're completely wayward they can only ever follow up impulses um and i and i think that there's something potentially a bit regressive, dare I say, mm. about that. Uh, what do you make of that, Tom? I think that's I think that's true, and I think what's curious about her professional incompetence is that it's not just played for laughs in this. At various moments, you also start to think that Arabella is is herself quite an exploitative character. It's not just cute to be missing deadlines. At one point, her long-suffering, very middle-class white agents are contemplating having to take out a loan in order to kind of repay the fees because she's failed to submit the manuscript. So, so Michaela Cole is smart enough to keep reminding you that this sort of incompetence isn't just played for laughs, but that there are kind of human casualties for this. And I suppose it's one small expression of what's a much bigger theme in the series, which is characters who are living on the edge or characters who are risk takers, characters who are careless. It's a program really about people who are irresponsible. Now, what's brilliant about this is that it doesn't ever open the door or suggest that irresponsibility justifies what happens in terms of the rape at the beginning. You know, it never could. But nonetheless, these, this rape at the beginning doesn't mean that the people to whom these things happen are not spotless. You know, they're not living pure, blameless lives. They are fundamentally risky, careless people. Um, and I thought the way that it critiques the language of care more broadly was really interesting. After the rape, there's all of this emphasis on a kind of culture of self-care. You know, her and her friends rally round and they're going to protect each other and it's all about self-care. Um, but you see them preaching self-care at the same time as they're taking drugs, at the same time as they're kind of hooking up with these strangers um, in a way that is presented very non-judgmentally. I mean, I think the other thing that's brilliant about the series is you're not really clear what you're meant to think morally about any of the vignettes or the episodes that you're shown. 
Um, but there's something about, uh, you know, this desire to try and heal yourself while still living this completely uh, wild kind of chaotic existence, um, which is really jarring um, and really interesting. And I think there's probably a bigger critique of therapy culture going on here as well. Yes. I mean, what, again, it's the things you, you think you're supposed to be in favor of turn out to create monsters of the people. So the, the sort of the cure becomes the poison that happens again and again um, in this uh, program, whether it be social media, whether it be therapy, culture, therapy, talk, um, and, or, or whether it be, um, you know, sex with the, someone who seems to be a good thing. So, so I think with the therapy culture, you get the figure of the friend, Terry, uh, who is hiding something which makes her feel guilty in relation to Bella's rape. So what she does is she kind of sets herself up as a kind of full-time almost counselor or supports network for Bella. And she sort of starts to kind of oppress her with her rhetoric of self-care. And she's kind of constantly flinging these uh, bon mots at her and it starts to become oppressive. And also they start to kind of be suspicious and, and mock it. And it's actually really clever because it, you know, the, the take home isn't, yes, Bella succeeds by, you know, becoming better at self-care. It's, oh, Terry is, is sort of becoming obsessed with self-care because she's hiding something else or it's too much of a good thing. Another way you see the problem is that the woman who is running the rapes uh, survivor support group, Theo, the interesting kind of white, uh, slightly kind of chubbier friend from school, we see in Theo's flashback episode, um, that she, uh, you know, that her mother, Theo's mother, um, told Theo as a child to lie about the fact that her biological father had sexually abused her so that her mother would be able to get full custody. Now, these are the kind of small plot details that Michaela Cole just scatters in. But by putting them in there, she is opening up the Pandora's box of making you realize that um, the language of you know, assault or the language of sexual abuse can itself be weaponized, can itself be manipulated, can itself be lied about. Um, and so I read this whole series as a kind of takedown on some of the moral certainties that you sometimes associate with the Me Too movement, a really kind of a, a kind of really forensic attack on the idea that there are victors at victims and that there are perpetrators and that they belong in completely different camps. Rather, it is interested in a spectrum of violations where the rape that happens to Michaela is obviously the most brutal and it's at the beginning, but all these other forms of sexual encounter are tinged with violence, um, potentially, or a tinge certainly with risk, whether it be the threesome that Terry has with the two strangers that she realized she's been duped about, um, whether it indeed it be the, the relationship that Arabella has um, with Zane, that there are all of these mini rapes and mini violations that are going on um, you know, throughout the narrative that create this really troubling and I think kind of fascinating gray zone um, between who is actually exploiting who, who has actually manipulated who. Indeed, Arabella herself is quite mean to her friend Kwame at one point. Um, that when Kwame is sort of recoiling from his own uh, sexual assault, she forces him in a room with another man um, and locks the door. So the question of who is the victim and who is the, who is the kind of oppressor is extremely fluid and you have to keep kind of rereading the scenes to work out what you who you think is actually the moral core at any moment. They're really interesting there's a point when Arabella is at her peak mania um she's outed Zane who has had uh sex with her I won't 
well, okay, I won't give this away as a spoiler, but in such a way that... <laughs> I think we're going to have to give spoilers. Well, but in such a way that it turns out that it was an assault. So he takes off the condom in the middle of the act and, then, and she only figures that out after and she doesn't seem to mind at the time. Um, but then when she, uh, she's talking to the police about the, um, the rape, she finds out that that counts as rape too. So then that sort of explodes in her head and adds to it. So after Zane, after this realization with Zane, she becomes a sort of evangelical person who calls out rape and assault on her social media um, and she becomes really really obsessed with it she becomes a sort of mini celebrity for it in a way but it makes her quite manic and there's a scene where someone comes up to her in the street and says how much they love her and they learn that the work she's doing is amazing they they want to share a story about their pain and she sort of goes on and on about yes tell me your pain i'm interested in pain and her friends terry and kwame are kind of rolling their eyes here she goes again so mm. it's really amazing how they take this thing that you know, is so close to the way we as modern people post Me Too or, or not just post Me Too, post the development of therapy culture, this fetishization of pain, emotional pain. Survivors. We've talked about it. Well, we've talked about, exactly, talked about it with normal people. Show me your pain, the damage, like we all have our damage. And they're actually saying, oh my God, like she's, she's using, she's basically exploiting the concept of pain uh, to make herself more of a, a, fa a front frontest woman for uh this whole cause and, and this kind of yes tell me your pain and then she'll she'll kind of use it and exploit it so i think that was really uh interesting i think the me too point's really also very important and the fact that you know me too one of the critiques people including me had of me too was that it, it created a narrative in which sex was about victimhood especially for women and i i think that what we're getting here with all the different little mini assaults micro and well micro and macro assaults um is the sense that modern sexuality in the city enabled by the internet is, is sort of hasty and dangerous and assault is constantly hovering um, it's you can't there's always a sort of violence underpinning these sort of seemingly carefree liberated acts but i think it's also very clear that from the moment she realizes what zane has done the penny drops and she goes into this overdrive with the social media and the rape activism she then loses her grip on reality and becomes really quite um sort of monstrous uh, and so it does it does make you think i think she wants us to think you know how beneficial is it to people to see everything through the prism of assault um, that's not to defend what zane did which which was a huge violation but i think after me too there started to be some people who were thinking okay what can we just classify as bad sex and what has to be seen as assault and if we read everything as assault it can actually kind of really entrench a, a victim mentality and i think she's allowing this this show is allowing us to see that i think with kwame there's a sexual encounter which it's unclear um just how uh, intrusive it is but he definitely reads it as rape um and so that then causes him a lot of misery tom we haven't had that many gay characters yet to be able to talk about what do you make of the way masculinity is presented here through the character of kwame who is the sort of gay best friend who's completely addicted to grinder yeah, so I thought Kwame was is a lovely performance uh, from the actor. I felt that the character was a little bit um, disappointing overall, actually. I think kind of Kwame and the, the backstory to Kwame is very interesting. Um, I think it's curious that after this incident of violation that happens when he, again, um, falls into a threesome that, again, you can't really control the, the kind of outcome of, and um, when he goes to the police, they are uninterested. Um, in investigating this case. And so there is, even in Michaela Cole's own mind, an awareness that certain kinds of trauma are, you know, recognized, are supported, um, and others, you know, struggle to find any kind of visibility. So I think she makes a good point there about so much of sort of same-sex rape 
did doesn't get the same attention or the same traction. Um, I was a bit disappointed with the the ultimate arc of his character, though, which is a, a man who is addicted to Grinder, who is kind of you know constantly cruising London buses and collecting new people. Um, but then he ultimately gets cured by romance. You know, it's the man who can take him for walks and take him to the art gallery that ultimately leads him to settle down. Um, and if I had a criticism of the show, I would say that there's a similar problem a little bit with Terry's kind of outcome at the end, that just as Kwame's redemption is a bit hasty, um, Terry, the friend at the end, settles down with a trans um, person um, and actually settles down, you know, very happily with a trans person, but in a way that you feel that's such a significant identity category these days that it actually needs to be a little bit more explored. You know, she has to overcome some of her own anxiety about trans people and then can happily be in a kind of trans, in a relationship with a kind of trans person. Um, the, the, just want to go back to one other thing you said, Zoe, which I think is fascinating about this, is that Nicola Cole is aware of the fact that trauma can also be commercialized. Um, that actually rape is also something that sells. When she goes to see her publisher with the manuscript, Arabella, the publisher turns around and says, rape, fantastic, um, exclamation mark. We are live in a culture which is both apparently repulsed by this act, but also is addicted to talking about it and addicted to people sharing their experiences of it. Um, and I think some of the, the strongest aspects of the kind of social satire or the social critique in the program is about our hunger for uh, this kind of sensationalism. Um, and I think what's brilliant in the, the very final episode is that Arabella decides she has to weigh up how far she's gonna allow this event to define her, like how far she's gonna allow that early act of abuse to set her whole life. And in a brilliant twist, we get three different possible finales, three different ways and she could kind of confront that past, whether it be taking bloody revenge, whether it be about getting the cops involved, whether it be about trying to hear the rapist side of the story, whether about reclaiming the sexual power herself. She thinks through in her head the different ways that you could end this narrative, and none of them are actually satisfactory. Um, the only way that she could end it is instead by kind of producing her book and kind of containing it. Uh, but I think there is, she's very aware of how untidy um, and potentially how hypocritical some of the ways that we talk about sexual violence are that, you know, that it's both condemned and also, you know, hugely kind of promoted and incentivized as a whole sort of publishing industry at the same time. I love that this repeated use of untidy and messy. I mean, we, this is, this is the, like, the values of, of modern, of, of art, of kind of sensibility and art today. I mean, as a historian uh, in, of modern Britain, I can assure you that there's no shortage of uh, describing history's workings as messy, and that is considered <laughs> a good thing. Um, Tom, I think it's time we kind of brushed on, uh, well, I think it's time we sort of discussed how race is handled, actually, because you know, you're talking about um, Kwame's experience with the police. You know, you know, it's, there's a sort of interesting pattern. And again, it's not clear how we're supposed to read into this pattern, if at all, because one thing the program does, obviously, is hugely normalize um, its, yeah, the, the kind of largely black social life that it depicts. Um, it, it, it's, it's very subtle and in, like, sort of it's subtle how it, how it works so it's not a whole sort of look at me I'm doing a, a race thing but it's obviously going to be part of it especially given present debates um the police the policeman that Kwame goes to uh, who's really shit is black um the police woman one of the police women who um, Bella goes to about her assault is black and she's really good um the therapist is black there's a there's a a doctor who um 
she goes to who is white and he assumes she's of afro-caribbean descent when she's mm-hmm. of afro african descent and they're really hard on him and you do you feel a bit mistake. bad well they you do feel a bit bad for him and i think they want you to feel a bit bad for him biagio is um is white the italian guy although he might have some um the actor's name suggests he's not he might have some kind of middle eastern origin but he's essentially white and obviously the two men that the terry the friend has have the threesome with are white the flatmate is white but the friends the kind of really close uh, theo the the woman you mentioned that who runs this uh, victims of sexual abuse is white she has this really complicated background from school where she uh was seen as framing a black boy for rape himself so how do you see this sort of clever take on race what do you think it's saying about diversity for instance I think it's really interesting because on the one hand, if you look at the cast list, as you suggest, this is a completely integrated world in which, um, you know, black and white friendships are kind of common. Um, and then, you know, as you say, and black characters are introduced without any kind of fanfare. You know, this is just, this is the milieu. And it's wonderful how untheatrical and how normal that is. On the other hand, this is a world where race still matters in certain key moments. So I think it's more a world in which race suddenly kind of ignites. You know, it's pervasive but it only really becomes polemical in some of these kind of key moments, like with um, the situation with Theo at school, where she has sex with the black boy, I think he's called Ryan, uh, and then she accuses him of rape after he takes photos of her without her consent. Again, another act of potential violation. One of the most interesting examples is the job that Michaela um, Cole gets working, or Arabella gets, working for the vegans. You know, she ends up doing this kind of company promoting uh, vegan food. And she realizes that she's been hired precisely because black people don't eat very much vegan food. And so it's a classic piece of diversity casting, you know, that she gets a platform precisely because they're trying to reach new kind of demographics. And so it's both an opportunity for her, but she's also angry at the way that she's being commodified and the way that she's being used to sell products. So, so race is both... Um, in some relationships seems to be something that doesn't matter at all. And yet at other moments, racial difference is absolutely packaged, commodified, traded on, um, you know, loaded politically in quite different ways. And that bigger thing about, um, you know, using black faces to sell to black consumers and black customers comes back again and again with her own kind of publishing enterprise and stuff as well. Uh, Confessions of a fed up millennial. Uh, It's worth pointing out, um, Zane also uh, has Indian heritage and he makes that very clear he's not meant to be not Indian he says you know he explains his Cambridge uh, degree and, and high achievement uh, by saying he's Indian um, so you know he then is the rapist and that's an incredibly bold problematic thing to do really to, to, to have a kind of to make this an in, you know the second rapist is Indian uh, of a of a black woman, um, that is asking a lot. That is asking for for um, simple narratives of <clears throat> BAME versus everyone else to be reconsidered. I mean, the 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 first um, rapist, the one who drugs her and assaults her, is white. He is enabled by a black man. So it it sort of it 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 creeps along in quite not an even-handed way, but it's just not allowing um, simplistic narratives like that. Although when it goes back to their school days, 
and this alliance they talk about the black alliance of these girls against theo and against against you know white teachers and so on um you know there is a lot of sort of you know white girl tears white people this it, it, it's more tr sort of what you it's more aggressive anti-white talk and actually that isn't really a big feature of of the kind of rest of the program and it's unclear how we're meant to be seeing that but i think that the the way the the kind of levels of awareness of being by a black woman about black uh sort of a black social life black family life or Ghana, you know Ghanaian heritage in a white country in a what you know in a basically still a predominantly white city with white friends and white lovers but there's a, but but who are still peripheral somehow and and then knowing that there'll be a lot of white viewers so it's it's very reflexive it's interesting and, and goes beyond just saying white people are dreadful even though there's quite a lot of that as well what's the beauty there is is that as you say this is a thing that thrives on self-contradiction uh, you know, if one was being Marxian about it, you'd say that it's almost dialectical. You know, she loves those kind of um, those contradictions. And one of those uh, contradictions, of course, comes from social media, the way that she's bombarded by rival messages that are telling her, you know, and, and sort of encouraging her to say the most kind of contradictory or dogmatic things at kind of different moments. Um, but I do think contradiction is one of the, the great sort of themes running through the, the whole series. And as a final image, when her book is published at the end, we see that it has this white cover and on the white cover, there's the A, the black letter for Arabella. And there's the X of the stuff that she used to keep under her bed. And only in the final shot in the book has she managed to reconcile the dark, nasty, dangerous stuff with Arabella herself. Like that she's internalized the contradiction. Whereas I think the beauty of this show up to that point is actually that it wants to rub contradictions against each other. You know, homophobia uh, against, um, you know, anti-racism, uh, you know, feminism against, um, you know, trans uh, positions, environmentalism against uh, kind of uh, BAME kind of representation. So she loves the kind of dialogue of opposite. She loves rubbing these identity categories against each other. Um, and I think that reflects itself something about the social media age in which we're living, in which identity categories are being hurled around um, and, and kind of clashing all the time. Yeah, and I think just as a final point on social media, uh, I really appreciated the way that the particular Oh, feeling or affect of social media is captured here where it's addictive and it's empowering and it allows her to profit and become an influencer but it drives you crazy it's it's nothing it's empty it stimulates brain hormones and chemistry that ends up you know leading leaving you with just emptiness various voices chaotic voices with no order and no structure um, and i think like when you compare her there's a moment when she's running through the streets uh she's she's just done a, a, a some post about uh a rape she's she's constantly taking selfies and pictures with people she's constantly putting her posting things she can't do anything without touching her phone and you see her running through or walking looking deranged in a mad costume through central london after she's just fallen out with her friends been horrible to them and you've got messages flashing up saying you need help you troll um you're amazing uh you're you know you're deranged I, you know, I'm going to like, you know, fuck you and kill you. Um, you're the, you're amazing. You should win a Nobel prize. And she's in these, these discombobulated, these the sheer chaos and, and mixed messages and emptiness and, and just entropy of it all. It's just, you know, you really, anyone who's spent any time uh, with multiple apps on their phone um, 
especially people with prominent with big social media profiles which i thank god do not have not for want of trying but i just uh, i think would probably relate to that the sort of relentlessness of it and then paired uh, with kwame's addiction to grinder you know he also can't be present he's constantly on his phone and for him his locations just like for her the space in her head is completely inundated for him the actual space of the city is completely carved up and inundated by these messages of possibility you know he'll be in the supermarket and you know grinder is a, an app that works by distance so someone will say you know i'm in the bathroom meet me in the bathroom and so he'll meet a stranger in the bathroom of the supermarket or um or you know he'll be on a bus and someone will see that he's nearby or so this whole thing is kind of there's never any ability to be in the present their brains are completely colonized by social media and i i thought that was a, a very like uh, realistic um and and you know the, the sort of randomness in a way the the, the yeah the postmodern feeling of of emotional life today as mediated through these uh, this technology. Um, so Tom, why do you think this program has been such a success given its curious and challenging form? I'm gonna give three simple reasons. Uh, I think the first simple reason is Michaela Cole herself, who is absolutely mesmerizing to watch. Uh, I read one review where the New Yorker described her as a wreck of charisma. <laughs> I think that that pretty much captures a that kind of, of messiness. A wreck of oh, a charisma. Wreck. Okay. Yeah, here she is, this kind of chaotic character, but who is so fundamentally alive that she burns up the screen. So I think it's partly Michaela Cole's um, acting. I think the second reason is Michaela Cole's writing. This is a script that went through 191 drafts. You wonder how many post-it notes that meant. Uh, but I do think the writing is exciting. And I think it, what's brilliantly exciting about it is it is so iconoclastic. I think she's willing to say things and show things that television usually doesn't. I mean, there are precedents, as you've said, Zoe, but with some of this material, she's willing to inhabit some of the political uh, inconveniences. She's willing to kind of thrive on the incompatible categories that we currently live with. So that, that kind of appetite for contradiction, I think, is important. Um, and the third is that it just feels so much like the confusion of 21st century consciousness. Um, I think it's not an accident that the bar where she gets raped is called ego death. Um, and so there is something about the like dissolution of the psyche under all of these contradictory pressures, under all of these kind of impossible politics, under the pressure of all this technology, that she sees that kind of 21st century individuals are in mental meltdown. And this program captured that in a way that I haven't seen done before. Zoe, what about for you? Okay, well, I think we are in a moment where race is the hot topic and everyone is thinking deeply about race and the position of an experience of minorities in our culture and how they relate to different um, racial majorities and mi minorities. And this program, for what, you know, gives us plenty of that material, but in, in such a non black and white used maybe in advised ill-advised words but so it allows us to really feast on on race okay as a topic as as a as a point of consideration as a lived reality without giving us lectures or pat um binaries that we that can sometimes really you know creep into the narrative and, and make it all a bit sort of unpleasant to to wade into and i think she she gives us like almost like a playground in which we can think about these things in in you know very visual um uh, physical ways i also think the way it deals with sex and obviously the assault that lies at the core of it is just a fascination of our times i mean you, you said it 
as well. It's the sort of the secret that we'll never tell, as Foucault would say, as Foucault and you, Tom, would say. Um, the sort of endless <laughs> Thank you for the, the comparison. <laughs> yeah, it's the scene we come back to again and again. The assault, like the original sin, almost of, of this program, is also the the sort of original sin that as a society we we can't get away from. And and you know, post Me Too, the appetite for working through. Uh, the way sexuality and assault and and everyday experience and and you know th pl things that seem to be okay and then suddenly you realize they aren't okay or are they okay? Aren't, you know the way these boundaries are blurred um, is is a kind of something that many modern people are living through, especially when they're meeting lots of strangers from the internet. Um, and and that she just obviously the way it's dealt with here is, is so psychologically thorough. So I think that's that's why the hype. And yeah, just like Michaela Cole is just fascinating to watch and has these amazing. Uh, wigs and headpieces and so on and so I think I think it's just visually fascinating I'm with you on the wigs um okay well <laughs> great so wigs aside uh join us next time for a discussion of Parasite <laughs> <laughs>